We continue our sermon series in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can open to chapter 3. Uh, words will also be on the screen online. You'll see the scripture as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Maybe you've experienced this before, but you have a terrible week. Maybe it's a week where things go just horribly at work or you receive bad news or a relationship comes to an end. And by the time you get to the weekend, you can't wait to just sit down and watch your favorite team play. And you watch this game and your team plays really well and they pull off a, a big victory and suddenly you find your heart kind of filled with joy and you've kind of forgotten the week, the terrible week behind you. You know, what's going on when that happens? Well, you're, you're vicariously living your life through this team or through a player. And when they are successful, when they're victorious, you feel this lift inside and you share in that victory. The reason we do this is because we are actually designed to share in the victory of another. And if you question, is that, is that really universal? Just go to a youth soccer or football field on a Saturday morning and watch parents, how parents can behave at a youth game. It's not always so honorable whether it's towards the rest or the coaches, but you can watch parents vicariously living their life through their kids. And if their kids win, then they win. 
You say, well, I don't, I don't get it because I don't like sports. Well, in about three months, you're gonna experience it. When we have a presidential election, it comes around every four years. And there's this sense where, depending on what side you're on, you're hoping for a victory. Because potentially that victory may solve all our problems. And certainly this is a unique election year where we go into that with a lot of problems and a lot of suffering in our world right now. But all that is to say we are wired to share in the victory of another. Peter is writing to people here in the first century who are suffering tremendously. As we've seen, they've been insulted, they've been mocked. They're suffering for doing good. And he writes to them in the midst of this suffering, this hardship, this despair, and he says, I want you to rejoice in the victory of another, the victory of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So it raises the question, how do you share in the victory of Christ? We're going to answer two questions. First, what is the victory of Christ? And then how do you actually share in it? So first, the victory of Christ, what is it? Well, there's two parts to it. There's two parts to the victory of Christ. The first is his suffering. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ, the righteous one, the perfect one, the sinless one, suffered and died on the cross in your place, the unrighteous one, the sinful one, the imperfect one. You say, well, how is there victory in that? Where's the victory in the suffering of Christ? Well, Peter goes on to describe it by relating it to the story of Noah and the flood in the book of Genesis. He says in verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That's the story where God judged the sin and the evil in the world by sending a flood to remove the sin and evil that didn't belong in his world. Noah and his family were spared judgment because they were on the ark, a boat. And this boat absorbed or took the brunt of God's judgment and kept it from touching Noah and his family. In the same way Christ has absorbed the judgment of God, if you've trusted Christ, he's absorbed it so that it doesn't touch you. Years ago, uh, in our, a previous house we had, we had someone pressure wash the house for the first time. Now, we weren't there when it got pressure washed. But we came home that afternoon and walked into a little bit of a horror because on the floor are hardwood floors. At the base of the front door and at the base of the back door was a large puddle of water. It was an older house, and so the doors weren't sealed well. So when he pressure washed down at the bottom of the doors, that water with bleach mixed in it came in. It's not good news for hardwood floors. Now, what did we do the next time we had our house pressure washed? Well, we rolled up towels, and we stuffed those towels at the base of the doors so that when he pressure washed, 
And that water, which had the ability to damage, badly damage our hardwoods, would get absorbed by the towel and it wouldn't touch the hardwood. That's a picture of what Christ has done for you. That he took your sin. He took the evil of the world. And he absorbed God's judgment so that it wouldn't touch you. That's the first part of Christ's victory. It's his suffering. But there's a second part to Christ's victory, and that's his resurrection. Right? End of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh. That's part one of his victory, suffering. But made alive in the spirit. That's part two, his resurrection. Another way to read this phrase is being put to death in the realm of the flesh, but made alive in the realm of the spirit. Two realms, two worlds. Jesus, when Jesus died, he put to death the old world of sin and evil. And when he rose from the dead, he gave birth to the new world, the kingdom of God in which sin and evil has already been defeated. So that when Jesus rose, he ushered in a new world, completely victorious. As verse 22 says, through the resurrection of Christ, who's gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That Jesus stands victorious over this world in power over every authority over angels, even over the unseen world. And that's what verse nine is, 19 is getting at. It's, it's a very difficult verse. It's a verse where you scratch your head and say, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me explain. Verse 19, in which he went, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. What does this mean? Well, there's a couple of verses that give us some context here. 2 Peter 2, 4 speaks of fallen angels who are kept in chains until final judgment. And then Jude 14 refers to a book of Enoch, which was a book outside the scriptures, but it was a book that described the fallen angels in Noah's time. So you put those together, and what it means is that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he went and preached to those fallen angels in prison, declaring his resurrection, victory, and their doom. The point is this, that Jesus' victory over evil and sin, right, was and is thorough and final over the seen world, over the unseen world. It's all subject to him. All right, there's Christ's victory. Now, how do you share it? How do you share in that victory? Well, before we answer that, let me explain why it's even appropriate to talk about sharing in Christ's victory. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. That word correspond can also be translated symbolized. What it says is that, is that baptism symbolizes what happened in the story of Noah. 
that just as Noah and his family were saved through water, so the waters of baptism tell the story of your salvation. They tell the story of your salvation, namely that Christ absorbed the judgment of God on sin and saved you from it. And then Peter, to make sure we don't think that the actual physical act of baptism or that the water that is, is put on the head or if someone's submerged, that the, the water itself doesn't save. That's why he says it's, it's not a removal of dirt from the body. He's not speaking of the, the physical water that washes dirt away. He's speaking of the water that symbolizes a much deeper transformation at the conscience level, a good conscience. He's speaking of a brand new life in Christ, a brand new transformed life on the inside, and that baptism symbolizes that transformation that's taken place or symbolizes that transformation that will take place over time in the case of a child, and that it represents union or oneness with Christ. And when you're one with Christ, then his victory becomes yours. So when we talk about sharing in the victory of Christ, baptism is symbolic of you becoming one with Christ and sharing in that victory. So practically, how do you share in that victory? Well, first, sharing in Christ's victory means returning blessing for insult. Look at verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called or you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now this verse at first glance can seem to say that if you bless those who insult you, that's a way to earn God's blessing. That's not at all what it means. Pain that gets translated obtain it's a word that means inheritance, that you inherit a blessing. You don't earn an inheritance. You receive an inheritance. And Peter's already said in chapter one that we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. It's, wait, it's there waiting for us. We don't earn it. And that inheritance ultimately is the victory of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Right? So the, the inheritance is Christ's victory that we get to share in. So back to the command here, bless, for to this you were called. Do not repay evil for evil, but evil for evil, but on contrary, on the contrary, bless. Now Peter could have stopped short with don't repay evil for evil. Listen, when someone insults you, just don't retaliate. Just don't retaliate. I mean, you can just kind of keep your bitter thoughts in your heart. You can curse them in your heart. Do whatever you want inside your heart, but just don't retaliate. No, Peter takes it a step further. He says, no, I don't want you just not to retaliate. I want you to bless that person. I want you to seek their salvation. I want you to seek their good. You say, wow, that's quite a command. It starts with prayer. The, the fulfillment of blessing, returning blessing for insult starts with prayer. We actually see this in Acts chapter seven. There's a beautiful picture of it. In Acts seven, when Stephen 
who was one of the first deacons in the early church, shares and preaches the beautiful news of Christ, and what he gets for it is stoning. He got stoned. And it says that while he was being stoned, he said, Lord, do not hold this against them. Now we know that Stephen's prayer was effective, at least in the person, or at least in, in one person's life. And that was the Pharisee that was there. His name was Saul. It says he approved of Stephen's execution. And yet we know that later Saul would meet Jesus become a follower of Christ, become Paul, and write a majority of the New Testament. Stephen returned blessing for insult by praying. But it doesn't just end with prayer. It goes beyond that. Karen Jobes, she's a professor at Wheaton College. She was teaching this text to some students. And after she taught it, she said, now let's talk. I, I want to hear practical examples of what this looks like to return blessing." to an adversary or to someone who's insulted you. And one of the students shared and said, shared a story of a young Christian soldier who was in the barracks with his unit. And every night before bed, before he would go to sleep, he'd read his Bible and he would pray. And soldiers in his unit across the aisle would revile him when he did this. They would mock him. They'd make fun of him. They'd insult him. And one night, went so far as a, a muddy combat boot came flying at him as he did this. And the next morning, that hostile soldier woke up and found two clean, polished combat boots at the foot of his bed ready for inspection. And it was actually through the strength provided by the Holy Spirit, this Christian soldier who was sharing in the victory of Christ by doing this, that several soldiers in that barracks became followers of Christ. Miroslav Volf says it this way, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. Two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is committed. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. You say, this all sounds great, but how in the world does someone find the strength to do something like that? How do you find the strength to return blessing to someone who is insulting you, mocking you, maligning your character, tearing you down. When every part of your flesh and every part of you just wants to retaliate, how in the world do you find that strength? Well, Peter goes on here in verses 10 to 12 to describe it. And he's actually quoting here from Psalm 34. It says, when you're faced with evil, this is in verse 12, when you're faced with insults, the Lord's eyes are on you. The Lord's eyes are on you. In a few of the verses in Psalm 34, pick this up. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those who look to him are radiant. 
and their faces shall never be ashamed. See, when you're faced with evil, when someone has treated you unjustly, insulted you, maligned your character, you really have two choices at that point. You can stare at the evil, which if you stare long enough, you will retaliate. Or you can stare at Christ. Understand that when you're faced with evil, your heart desires victory. And what I want you to hear is that's not a bad desire. In fact, that's a God-given desire. Another word for that is your heart desires justice. You want things to be made right. Everything that's wrong be made right. That's a desire for success, for victory. That's a good desire. But there's two ways that you can pursue that victory. If you stare at the sin, then you will retaliate. You will try to gain victory by retaliating. And as that quote from Miroslav Volf says, when you return evil for evil, that's actually when you have allowed evil to triumph fully. But when you're staring at Christ, when you stare at Christ and you see his victory by his suffering, by his resurrection, you see his victory over evil. That's what gives you the power to not retaliate. When you're staring at Christ, what someone has done to you is not what shapes your response to them. When you're staring at Christ, what Christ has done for you, how Christ has treated you, shapes your response. And to use that illustration of the Christian soldier, you know, who are we in that story? Well, spiritually, we run the spiritual imagery of it. We're the hostile soldier that throws the muddy combat boot at Christ in our sin, our rebellion. And Christ returned blessing for insult, and that is how evil has been defeated, through Christ's suffering and through his resurrection. So sharing in Christ's victory means returning blessing for insult. But second, it means suffering without fear. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, righteousness' sake, in other words, if you should suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's a, if you're floating a little bit right now, I want you to read that verse again. That's a shocking verse. It says, if you suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. And again, the blessing that we've seen here is the inheritance, the victory of Christ, the sharing in Christ's victory. That is the blessing. It's not you're going to get a brand new car. You're going to get this wonderful house. Or you're going to get a raise at work. That's not the blessing that Peter's talking about here. He says, if you suffer for doing good, you will share in Christ's victory. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. 
This is absolutely countercultural and upside down. What Peter is saying here is that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. He's saying that suffering is blessing. Now, I, if there's not a more countercultural, upside down statement than that, then I don't know what is. And the reason there's blessing is because Christ has blazed that trail of suffering that ends in glory. And so when you suffer for doing good, you are on the path that Christ has blazed that will end one day in glory. I want you to imagine these two scenarios. You're walking through the woods. And in one scenario, you're walking through the woods on a marked and clear path. All the brush has been removed. All the, the trees have been cut down. Uh, the shrubs, it, it is a smooth path. It's clear. It's marked. Now, imagine another path that's marked but not cleared. So you've got brush, you've got trees, you've got shrubs, and to walk it, you're climbing over briar patches to try to get through it. Now, which of those paths better represents suffering and hardship? Now, you may be thinking, this is a setup question. It is. Because the obvious answer is the uncleared path. Of course, that's a better representation of suffering and hardship. And yet Peter here is describing just the opposite. Peter seems to say that that clear and marked path actually represents suffering and hardship. And that the uncleared path is the path that represents a life of comfort and ease, the American dream. Again, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Actually, the American dream is the opposite of blessing. A life of comfort, a life of ease, a life that avoids any kind of suffering, that is actually the opposite of blessing. That's actually the uncleared path in the woods because it leads nowhere. The path of suffering, the path of hardship is the clear and marked path that Christ blazed that ends in glory. The path of the American dream is not a path that Christ has blazed. Now, what redirects you from that path of suffering and hardship to a path of comfort and ease? In other words, what would cause you to seek comfort and avoid suffering? Well, Peter says it's fear. It's fear of man, right? Verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, remember who's writing this letter. This is a man who's not writing in theory to you. Wasn't writing in theory in the first century and by extension to you. This is a man who's writing from experience. 
When Peter denied knowing Jesus Christ three times when Christ was being tried, when he denied him three times, he was living under the fear of man. He was afraid, if if he acknowledged that he knew Christ and worshiped Christ, he was afraid of what they would do to him. And so he lied. He lied to pursue comfort and to avoid the suffering that he thought would probably come if he acknowledged Christ. So Peter's writing as one who has experience. Now, after Christ rose from the dead, and restored Peter, a fundamental exchange happened in Peter's life. Fundamental exchange. He he exchanged the fear of man for the fear of the Lord. And that's what he writes in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's saying, don't fear man. Don't fear what they can do to you. Honor Christ. Worship Christ. I want you to imagine that you're exploring this uh, unknown glacier in Greenland. And as you're exploring this, great, this glacier, you get up to this cliff where on the edge of the cliff you look out and you see this glorious just view of jagged ice and just picturesque scene. And then a terrible storm kicks up. And the wind is blowing so hard that you feel fear rising in your heart that this wind could blow me over the cliff. And about that time, you find this little cleft in the ice. And in that cleft in the ice, you feel secure. You feel safe. But the storm rages on. That's a picture of what it means to exchange the fear of man for the fear of the Lord. Right, standing on the edge of that cliff, exposed to the storm, you fear the storm. You fear what it can do to you. And you do everything you can to try to avoid the consequences of what this storm can do to you. But when you're in that cleft in the ice, you don't fear the storm anymore. You don't fear what it can do to you because you have a safe place right in the middle of it, watching it unfold. Sharing in Christ's victory means suffering without fear. It means that you find this cleft in the ice, so to speak. It's Christ who has his eyes on you, who's near to the brokenhearted, to those crushed in spirit. And his nearness gives you the security to sit in the middle of that storm, in the middle of that suffering, while it continues to rage. But it gives you a safe place to watch it unfold. And when you're in that safe place, that secure place with Christ, you're not scrambling on how to try to get out of this storm. There's security right in the midst of it, while it continues to rage, while the insults continue to come, while the slander continues to come, while your character continues to be maligned, you sit secure and safe in Christ and you don't fear what they or what this situation can do to you. 
And when those two things are happening, when you are returning blessing for insult, and when you're suffering underneath it with no fear, Peter says something's going to happen, and this is the third way that you share in Christ's victory. He says people are going to start asking questions. They're going to start asking questions about your life. Why aren't you retaliating? Why aren't you defending your honor? Why aren't you getting out of this suffering? And that's when Peter says, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, people use this verse, make a defense for a whole thing called apologetics. How do you defend the Christian faith? And that's okay. That, but that's not the heart of what's happening here. Peter's saying when you're being insulted and you don't retaliate, and when you're suffering without fear, guess what? Somebody's gonna demand an explanation for your life. They're gonna say, this isn't normal. You're not responding like I see everyone else responding. Tell me why. And that's where Peter says, be prepared. It's gonna come. Be prepared to share the hope that you have in, inside. And that's the hope of Christ. Be prepared, don't back down. But what you're sharing is Christ's victory. That it's Christ's victory that enables you to bless instead of retaliate. It's Christ's victory that enables you to bear under this suffering without fear. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Why does he say that? Well, the person that asked the question of you may be the person that has insulted you. It may be the person that has hurt you. So he says, be careful that you don't share Christ pridefully and shame them. Retaliate religiously is another way to say it. No, you humbly with gentleness and respect share the victory of Jesus Christ. It was a balmy October afternoon in 1982 in Wisconsin Stadium, and there were 60,000 Wisconsin Badger fans that were prepared to watch Wisconsin take on Michigan State in football. And it became apparent pretty quickly that Michigan State was the better team, and it was becoming a blowout. And yet, as the score was getting more and more lopsided and Michigan State was winning the game, there, was, there, were, there were surges of applause, and there were surges of like joyful outbursts from the Wisconsin fans. And it made people wonder, why, why are they applauding and rejoicing and cheering when their team is losing so badly? Well, 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were winning game three against the St. Louis Cardinals of the World Series. And all these fans had portable radios. they were responding to something that was beyond their immediate circumstance. They were responding to something that was beyond their immediate 
circumstance. What's your immediate circumstance today? What immediate circumstance has you in a place of, of suffering or hardship or despair or struggle? In the midst of that circumstance, you are longing for victory. Your heart's desiring victory, desiring things to be made right, and that's a good thing. But the victory your heart's longing for is not found in your immediate circumstances. It's found in the victory of Jesus Christ, his suffering, his resurrection, which speaks over your circumstance. This week, lift your eyes above your immediate circumstance and share in the victory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of suffering, midst of pain, midst of hardship. It's so easy to stare into the storm and become really fearful. So easy to stare at the person that's insulting or slandering or maligning our character. It's, it's so easy to stare at that and become really fearful. And it's so easy in response to that fear to retaliate. And yet, Father, you give us another way. Having been united to Christ, you give us Christ's victory. The one who returned blessing for insult. The one who rose from the dead to proclaim victory. Father, would you help us this week to fix our eyes on Christ, knowing that Christ's eyes are fixed on us, knowing that Christ is near to the brokenhearted, saves those crushed in spirit. And to those who look to him, they're radiant. Father, lift our eyes beyond our immediate circumstances that we would share in the victory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.